Welcome to The Great Podcast, a show where we take a look at the important men and women of history and decide once and for all if they're worth all the fuss. I'm Jordan. And I'm David. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you, Jordan, for being willing to do this despite feeling poopy. I'll just sound a little weird and maybe cough sometimes. So just disregard that. If there's coughing, cries of pain or, you know, distress, ignore it. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. But this is episode 1.16, Gallienus. What a name. It is. It's an unfortunate name because I really like him. <laughs> it's just not a very good name. Gallienus. Especially when you have a dad named Valerian. Ah, uh, it's so much better. It is. It's <laughs> so much better. But imagine, if you will, an old man in fine clothes stands outside a palace. He looks drained, weathered, exhausted. He jumps slightly as the pounding of footsteps and the creaking of the palace doors jar him from his half-asleep state. A man in even finer clothes steps out before his entourage and appoint, uh, approaches his horse. Kneel, slave, he barks at the old man. Shakily, the elderly man gets down on all fours and braces himself. He lets out a grunt of pain and exertion as the younger man roughly plants his boot into his back and hoists himself up onto the horse. Dust is kicked into the old man's face as the riders head off. He slowly rises, wondering how much more he can endure and cursing the decisions that led him to this most miserable of existences. Wild. What yeah. a place to start for an emperor, let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> well, you don't, we, well, we don't know. <laughs> no, we don't know, know what's going on. Is. So, last time, I mentioned that we were going to be looking at Valerian and possibly his son Gallienus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Upon beginning my research... I realize that there is very little written on Valerian. All right. So we're looking at Mr. Anus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I knew the gist of Valerian already, which is why I wanted to do an episode on him. But upon diving in, it became clear that the gist is like is all it? there is. That's, That's all there <laughs> is, really. I got desperate enough that I was like, I'm going to check out the Historia Augusta on him mm. and just see what we can get. His chapter is missing. Oh, that's So we know... Almost nothing. <laughs> um, so instead, today we're going to quickly go over Valerian and then focus primarily on Gallienus. So, as with many Christ's emperors, little is known about Valerian's life before his ascension. He was born sometime around 199 CE and was of an ancient and noble senatorial family. This would set him apart from a bunch of the other crisis emperors because most of them were from varying degrees of low birth. Mm -hmm. Remember, Thrax mm -hmm. was some level of peasant. Yeah, I was all like, mm, power grab. Yep. You I'm, know, the, I'm, I'm in charge. People like me. I'm taking it. Yeah, cool. At some point, Valerian married Ignatia Mariana, Mariniana, excuse me. Around 218 CE, when Valerian was roughly 18 years old, the two had their first son, Publius Licinius Ignatius Gallienus. Some, That's a lot. That's a lot of pub, Publius going on. Yeah. Sometime later, uh, the two had their second son, Licinius Valerianus. And we won't talk about him again. <sighs> That's a better name, though. It is. I know. So Gallienus is not a good name. <laughs> oh, well. Valerian went through the usual climb of the Cursus Honorum. Sparse details make it unclear when he was made consul, but it was either prior to 238 CE, and that was the year of the six emperors, or it was during that year. Notably, in 238 CE, he was the Princeps Senatus, according to the Historia Augusta, which is essentially the guy at the top of the list of the Senate. It didn't come with much actual authority, but it was a huge sign of respect and gravitas. So Valerian was uh, very popular. Due to this high position, it is believed that when Gordian I uh, sent word to the Senate that he and his son had been declared emperors by their subjects in North Africa, the talks all went through Valerian. Mm. 
So very respected. Clearly, everyone held him in very high regard. And it is likely that he was also part of the Council of 20 that was set up to defend Italy from Thrax when Balbinus and Pupianus were briefly in charge. Fast forward a few years to the reign of Decius. Decius was all about trying to establish some stability and faith in the government. As Edward, as Edward Gibbon puts it, quote, he soon discovered that it was impossible to replace the greatness of Rome under the Antonines without restoring public virtue, ancient principles and manners, and the oppressed majesty of laws. To execute this noble but arduous design, he first resolved to revive the obsolete office of censor. So censor. Yes, we're going to quick dive into what that is. The censor was a role from way back in the days of the Republic. It is speculated that Sulla, the guy who almost killed Caesar and mm -hmm. was dictator our generation earlier, um, had ended the role of censor, just completely abolished it. As the name suggests, the censor was responsible for the census, but also for upholding the morality of the public as a whole, which is where we get the word censorship from. We don't need that. Morality? Yeah. Who needs it? Who needs morality? It's a dictator. Fine. I don't want someone trying to make things better. Okay. Well, I make them better is That's essentially uh, what happens. Yeah, 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 don't need yeah, a role yeah. for that. Yeah, I got this. I did it. It's fine. Their word was law when it came to morals, and they even had the power to kick people out of the Senate. Dang, so this was that's strong. Yeah. yeah, very big. It was very important and powerful. Pompey and Crassus brought it back when they were consuls. So this is about a generation later. But the position was waning in its authority. Mm. Augustus had granted two men the job in his early year in the early years of his reign. But from then onward, the emperors themselves would just discharge these yeah. duties. This makes sense, too, because that's a really powerful role that wouldn't jive well with an authoritarian government. Like, Sure, yeah. If you're trying to be the, the one head of power, you, it's kind of hard to which have is, a guy that has almost as much power as you exactly. to just make decisions without consulting you. Precisely. Yeah. And that is um, part of why Augustus is known to be part of the Principate, where he was the first man, not the only man. Mm. So he would give out those mm -hmm, duties mm -hmm. and stuff, but eventually it just kind of all became part of the emperor's role. Yeah. Vespasian and Titus were the last two emperors to officially hold the title. Trajan then set the precedent for all the Antonine emperors of the Golden Age to just not take the title for themselves. It's just, it was gone. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> so when Decius decided to bring the job back, he gave the Senate the choice on who should take it, just mm. like in the good old days. Yeah. The Senate took little time to unanimously vote for Valerian, who was, at the time, out in the field fighting alongside the emperor. When the news arrived in the camp, Decius called together the men and made a grand proclamation. Decius heaped praises on Valerian and essentially said, yo, take all this authority to decide who is worthy of being in the Senate and keep us from going astray. Be in charge of the money and help keep the troops in order. Everyone and everything will be subject to your tribunal. Go on. Take this wonderful offer. Oh, yeah. What do you think Valerian's response was that? No. Correct. No, I, no, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that. No, thank you. No, no. Valerian was a very intelligent man and highly aware of the dangers this yeah. position would have put him in. That's pretty much that's pretty much saying you're the new emperor. Right. That's, I mean, when... Gibbon again, quote, Valerian justly dreaded an elevation so full of envy and of suspicion. Mm -hmm. He modestly argued the alarming greatness of the trust, his own insufficiency and the incurable, incurable corruption of the times. He artfully insinuated that the office of censor was inseparable from the imperial dignity mm. and that the feeble hands of a subject were unequal to the support of such an immense weight of cares and of power. Man, that's just like one of those videos like, how do I professionally say no to this offer? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's just like, uh, 
No. <laughs> yeah, right. In short, taking this job would have put him at odds with the emperor, like mm-hmm. you said, uh, whose own power would naturally conflict with the powers of Valerian. Uh, plus, everyone who got power lately seemed Just to die. Dies. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, huh? Didn't seem Mysterious. to work out. Some sources say that he later accepted. I don't know. Some some places just call him Decius's censor. So oh, okay. I don't so. know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Also, I wanted to just brief aside here. I mentioned that during this reign uh, in last episode that Valerian put down a revolt that rose up in Rome. And I'll admit that I was kind of glossing over things with the expectation I was going to dive deeper. Mm-hmm. That may not have happened. It was Historia Augusta level stuff, and I couldn't find oh. any actual information on it afterwards. Well, so we'll just keep it. We'll just keep it chalked up. Yeah, to maybe I'm a professional researcher. That's right. Okay, I know so, how to use Google. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I found out uh, during you'll you'll hear me quoting a bunch of different like actual separate books in this and since we don't have like main mm-hmm. historical texts now uh i found archive.org is essentially oh, well. a library yeah online you that just for free borrow books it's awesome oh that's cool so yeah i found a bunch of books that i like was like oh i want to see what the actual book is on this not just a quote from it and boom mm-hmm. anyway decius likely would have continued pushing the issue of the censorship had it not been for Oh, that's right. The Goths still running amok. Mm. But Decius had them on the ropes following the prolonged siege of Philippopolis, which, as a side note, was founded by Alexander the Great's father, Philip. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Gibbon claims that the Goths were so worn out that they would have accepted peace terms, even giving up their booty to be allowed passage out of the empire. Kill them all. Yes. (laughs) Decius wanted revenge and to strike fear into the northern barbarians to prevent further insurrections insurrections that says incursions well you know i'm getting ahead of ourselves a little different but that's okay <laughs> and so it was that he and his troops along with his son and co-emperor pursued the goths mm-hmm. the initial battle went well but as we saw last time decius decius's son took an arrow and died before his father's eyes dang showing the resolve a proper emperor and general needed decius admonished his men for their fear claiming that the death of one soldier was nothing to worry about mm-hmm. which is kind of badass it is a little rough Two of the three columns of Goths were soon falling to Roman arms, but the center column was before a morass, which is like a low-lying, soggy ground, Mm -hmm. and the heavy armor of the legions, along with their shorter weapons, left them vulnerable to the barbarians who were all too used to fighting in such conditions. Their armor was lighter and their spears longer. It was in these muddy, horrible conditions that Rome lost one of its armies and two of its emperors. That's right. The body of Decius was reportedly never found. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a lot of corpses in a lot of mud. Mm-hmm. Following the death of Decius and his eldest son, the younger son, Hostilian, was named emperor. However, Hostilian was a bit too young, so it was decided that Gallus, who was out there in the field with Decius, would be the lead emperor. As we saw last time, Hostilian did not last longer than three weeks before <laughs> dying, likely from plague. Gallus, hoping to salvage the crumbling empire, offered peace to the Goths, allowing them to keep their loot and the Roman captives they had taken during the fighting. Yeah. He also agreed to pay a yearly tribute to the barbarians in the hopes that they would not return. This was aggravating to the honor and pride of the Romans. And what was worse, the plan didn't work. Yeah, they denied it. They're like, no. Well, rather than keep the barbarians at bay, it had inflamed their desire for more. Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. Like, oh, they're offering peace with all this. They're weak. Exactly. As Gibbon writes, quote, the dangerous secret of the wealth and weakness of the empire had been revealed to the world. New swarms of barbarians, encouraged by the success and not conceiving themselves bound by the obligation of their brethren, 
i.e. the Goths agreed not to invade, but we didn't, (laughs) spread the devastation through the Illyrian provinces and terror as far as the gates of Rome. So Gallus was not popular. Mm -mm. Many figured he had killed Hostilian and possibly been responsible for the Goths defeating Decius in battle. Early into his reign, a man called Mariades rose up in Syria and sacked the province before retreating to the Persians like the traitorous bastard he was. Gallus responded by calling for an attack on the Persians, but Sharpur I, our old frenemy, marched into Armenia and wiped out a Roman army. Oh. This invasion left the doors wide open for the Sassanids to invade the east once again. It's a lot of different fronts. Oh, just wait. Oh, just wait, my friend. Every important city and stronghold was captured, including Antioch. The following year saw more of the same, as the empire was too beaten down to mount a response. A man called Uranius Antoninus seems to have risen up in Emesa, which is in the far east, and pushed Shapur back, but little is known about him. He may have also then declared himself emperor, but because we know so little, it is safe to assume it didn't last for long. Mm. We'll get back to him in just a moment. Scythian tribes also invaded the Danube region during Gallus's brief reign. They wreaked havoc, then ran off with their loot. And it was at this time that Emilianus, governor of Upper Moesia and Pannonia, rode out and defeated these barbarians. Due to Gallus's lack of popularity, the instability of the East, and the fact that this is the crisis, Emilianus was declared emperor by his men. Valerian had been sent into the Gaul and Rhine regions to prepare an army to head east to fight the Persians. But then Gallus's letter arrived, ordering him to march back to Italy as fast as possible. Mm. Gallus himself then marched north to meet the incoming usurper. But Emilianus was quicker and met Gallus at Interanum. Amna. Interamna. There we go. There, either Gallus was defeated and then killed by his men, or no battle happened and Gallus's men switched sides. Hmm. Either way, Gallus and his son were killed, and Emilianus marched on to Rome. Okay, so now we're kind of wrapping up what had happened in our last episode, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more from Valerian's perspective. As we saw, Emilianus claimed that he didn't want to be emperor. He wished to be leave the civil side to the ruling of the Senate, and then he was going to go off and be head general, mm-hmm. defeat the Goths and the Persians. I Ooh. just want to fight war. Yeah, I want to beat them all, and then I'll, I promise I'll lay down my yeah, arms. No, for sure. Super serious. The Senate had no recourse but to accept, for now. But Valerian, though too late to save Gallus, was on the move. His men outnumbered those under Emilianus, and they had likely been training for the push east against the Sassanids. Once they got close to Italy, the unpopular Emilianus met the same fate as Gallus and found himself murdered by his own men who didn't feel like fighting Valerian. <laughs> okay, so Gibbon says this of Valerian's ascension. Quote, Valerian was about 60 years of age when he was invested with the purple, not by the caprice of the populace or the clamors of the army, but by the unanimous voice of the Roman world. Mm. High praise. Mm-hmm. The people had been stuck with unpopular usurpers for years now, and here came a man with vast experience and prestige to finally lead them out of this hole in which they found themselves. But Valerian was an older man. Gibbon says 60. Some sources say he was a little older or younger. This, coupled with the vast array of emergencies facing the empire, led him to declare that he would not serve alone. Like many crisis emperors, Valerian opted to rule alongside his son, Gallienus, who was around 40 years old at the time. My goodness. By summer of 253 CE, the father and son duo were officially joint emperors, ready to face off against the multitude of threats besetting them on all sides. So, like last time, I think we can keep this game going where uh, you guess 
how long each emperor will last oh, man. and how they will die. I, where did my notebook go? I don't know. I found it. Okay. Okay, so I'll give you this hint. Obviously, we're talking about Gallienus. He does outlive his dad. So how long is Valerian rule? Okay, that's what I was wondering. Well, since there's not that much known about him, we're going to go with he ruled for like four years. And it was really tough. And then he and then he died uh, from sickness, unfortunately. All right. So four like, years. Right when it was turning around, he was like, it was yeah, all getting we better. got this. Everything was going died. well. Yep. Four years in and then he died from illness. That's okay. right. And then our boy Gallienus. Gallienus continued to rule for another 10 years. Okay. So 14 and, total years. Sure. Okay. And then he was assassinated. Bye. Obviously. Oh, man. We, we can keep it simple. The army, gonna... the Senate, an outside force. The Senate probably doesn't, isn't that mad about him. Let's see, we're still, we're still not doing great. Rome doesn't really get better. Um, I just want to say, I just want to say the next uh, self-declared slash army-declared emperor. <laughs> okay. So assassinated by the next emperor after 14 years. All right. Let's see if you're right. Probably not. So as Gibbon points out, there are four principal factions on the outside threatening the empire at this point. The Franks, who we have not discussed yet. No, not yet. The Alamanni, who have been around for a long time. The Goths, Mm -hmm, our mm -hmm. most recent friends, who will never go away. Mm -hmm. And the Persians, the ancient friends, who will never go away. Mm -hmm. If you are at all familiar with geography which our listeners likely are, you can tell that these tribes and empires existed along the entire eastern border of the empire. The Franks were up north near modern Denmark. The Alamanni were around modern Germany. The Goths and the Scythians were north of Greece. And the Persians were in the far east around modern Iraq. Seeing these threats all along their borders, Valerian made a wise decision. Split the empire. Oh, no. Is this when this happens? No. No, what? it's not. So I, that's my next line. I'm like, this isn't the actual split Dang. of East and West. Um, but it was a conscious decision that Gallienus would rule in the West, mm. while Valerian, as the lead, mm-hmm, would mm-hmm. rule in the East and deal with the Persians. So we will get to the actual split in I the know, future. Eventually. That's uh, that's I believe that's under Theodosius. But we'll get there. That's that's in the future. For now, it's just kind of an agreement that you're Mm -hmm. dealing with this. I'm dealing with this. Soon into their joint reign, Valerian headed out for the east while Gallienus stayed in Rome. And the two would never see each other again. Tragic. It is. So Valerian set out for the eastern provinces with his sights on pushing out the Prussians, Persians, (laughs) and uh, securing the eastern territories. They had spent two campaigning seasons ravaging Syria, one of the wealthiest provinces, and had even sacked Antioch. Nisibis and Karhi, two other important cities, were also taken when the Persians had assassinated the Armenian king and taken the throne from his infant son. Oh, so they're just like, no, no, we're going to take that one over. It's ours now. This is ours. Yeah, you guys have, we've been back and forth on this for a long time. That's ours now. As Valerian marched his troops east, he helped clear out the Goths who had been ransacking Asia Minor, which is Turkey. The barbarians had become skilled in naval assaults and were raiding all hmm. along the coast and stealing the ancient treasures and pillaging temples throughout Greece and Turkey. When Valerian arrived in Antioch in 254 CE, he likely found the Sassanids had already gone. 
Remember that that Emesan priest king named Uranius is suspected of having fought off the Persians after they had invaded Syria. My textbook by Chris Scar states that Valerian spent his initial year in the East defeating that guy uh, who had declared himself emperor. Other places I've seen stated that it's unclear if that guy did this or if he really existed. So either way, that guy's no longer a problem. Meanwhile, Gallienus spent 254 to 256 fighting successful campaigns along the Danube, holding off the German tribes. Though details are sparse, he then moved west to the Rhine region and continued finding great success. This is impressive given that Valerian had marched off with many of the troops Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the region had been in disarray for many years now. Oh, yeah. Recognizing the danger that he and his son were in due to the constant warfare and sporadic outbreaks of plague, let me remind you, plague is still going around, (laughs) Valerian felt it prudent to name their successors to help keep the dynasty alive. These would be Gallienus' sons, Valerian II and Saloninus. There we go. That's how you say that. Got to kind of roll your tongue with it. The boys were likely in their early to mid-teens in 256 CE when they were appointed. Valerian II was sent up to Sirmium, which was a major city in the Illyrian province. This was in part to have a member of the imperial family around in this troubled province. And Illyria, if you don't know, is directly across from Italy to the east. As Valerian II was still young, it was decided that he needed a guardian and mentor, uh, since Gallienus was always running around doing other stuff. The man tasked with caring caring (laughs) for the Caesar was Ingenis. Ingenis had been personally appointed by Gallienus to oversee the legions in Pannonia, as well as educating the Caesar. And in this, he proved an excellent choice. Sometime in the year that followed his appointment, he repelled an invasion by the Sarmatians, which gave Gallienus the breathing room to continue campaigning along the Rhine. Nice. Well, at least we're kind of getting back to trying to establish the dynasty a little bit and educating an yeah. emperor before their emperor. It's It's been a while since we've had a proper... Yeah, yeah Alexander was the last one of a dynasty, mm-hmm. and that was still a bit hectic. The elder Valerian spent the next few years fighting off incursions by Shapur. By 257 CE, many victories had been won, both by Valerian in the east and Gallienus in the west. But it was also in 257 CE that Valerian did something that marks him as one of the bad guys in history. Do you recall what Decius had done that made him loathed in our history books? Nope. Decius had ordered a universal sacrifice to the emperor which was to be overseen by government officials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those who failed to make the sacrifice could face torture or execution. Right, that's where like the the indirect persecution of certain religious groups. And Christians got Mm -hmm. the brunt of that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As we saw, no one was safe if they refused to make sacrifice. Pope Fabian died either in a cell or was executed. Alexandria and Carthage saw large-scale anti-Christian violence. But again, this edict had not been a direct attack on Christians. It just sort of played out that way. We know the edict also had little lasting effect because many members of the government and even some senators were Christian by the Mm -hmm. time Valerian (laughs) came to power. But Valerian planned to do something about this. In 257 CE, he sent a letter from the East back to Rome with a decree. All Christian clergy must perform sacrifice to the Roman gods. On top of that, the Christians were barred from holding meetings in cemeteries. And if you have ever seen a Christian church, you know that many, particularly the older ones, were built right next to cemeteries. Right. This was bad, obviously, but in the following year, it got worse. 
In his book, The Rise of Christianity, WHC Friend writes, quote, Bishops, presbyters, and deacons were to be punished immediately. Senators, men of distinction, and knights, equestrians, were to lose their dignities and be deprived of their property. If they continued to profess Christianity, they were to be executed. Matronae, the only women with money and power in the entire empire, would lose their property and be banished. Imperial civil servants would be reduced to slavery and sent in chains to work on the imperial estates and mines. The Bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, was called before his proconsul and within the span of a short line of questioning was told, The most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian said, I refuse. Uh huh. After conferring with his advisors, the proconsul at length said, It is the sentence of this court that Thascus Cyprian be executed with the sword. Cyprian replied, Thanks be to God. And he said, cool, man, do it. What a badass. <laughs> <It's> like, bet. <laughs> I'll see my God sooner than you'll see yours, dude. A little more direct persecution this time. Yep. <laughs> Naming <laughs> specifically Christians. Yeah. Hey, man, you got to do it. <laughs> it. It was real rough for yeah. Christians. Yeah. This is what a lot of people seem to think Nero was doing to the Christians, you know, 200 mm. years earlier. Yeah. But this is the real Christian persecution. Yeah. Super called out. Nero was just insane. Nero was insane. Nero was a little little bitch boy. Yeah. Not a fan of him. Valerian's purpose for this edict is not fully understood. Some writers claim that when he first came to power, he had no issues with the Christians. It may well have been superstition that led him to change his position on this. Things had been falling apart for decades mm -hmm. by this point, and everyone likes a good scapegoat when things are going wrong. Yeah, maybe it's like, dang, we're not really doing great. It's gotta be because we're not offering the gods enough. Yeah, and those darn Christians, here. man. I just maybe it's them. They're holding us down. Plus, it was clear that the Romans were starting to fear the church, mm. as we see to this day. The church is a highly organized system, and it was essentially a state within the state. Mm -hmm. On top of that, these Christians kept trying to convert people, which clearly <laughs> felt like a threat to the Roman pantheon. And so, execution of Christians across the empire began in earnest. Mm -hmm. Back in the West. Gallienus was not too pleased with his father's orders for the execution of Christians. While he did not disobey, he probably didn't see it as a good idea to cause division within the empire at a time when division had led to so many uprisings and usurpations. But he had more important things on his mind at that moment. Likely in 258 CE, around the time of the second edict on the Christians, Gallienus received a message. His son and heir, Valerian II, was dead. No. It is not clear exactly what happened to him, but Gallienus's wife, Salonia, Salonina, mm, yes. yeah, Salonina, was certain that Valerian's guardian in Genus was responsible. Why? I don't know if that adds up. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Though the emperor was tied up with fighting along the Rhine, he began his attempts to have Ingenis removed from power. This, obviously, was no simple task. Mm -hmm. The man was a legate of a powerful military force and was well-loved by his troops. But, for the moment at least, Ingenis did not rise up in revolt. Meanwhile, Valerian continued his fight against the Persians. By 259 CE, he arrived in Edessa, which is around northern Syria. What happened next is unclear, so here's how I will lay it out for us. With the Persians moving in from the east, Valerian marched out with what might have been an army 70,000 strong. Here, the Romans were soundly defeated. Dang. 
It is likely that they were already suffering mightily from the deadliest enemy of armies throughout history, disease. Mm. Remember that the plague is still Mm -hmm, popping mm -hmm, up. mm -hmm. Now it was ravaging Valerian's forces. The remaining troops fell back to Edessa, where Shapur's men laid siege, and the Romans died of the plague. Seeing no other option, Valerian sent word to Shapur that he wished to talk terms. Shapur agreed. This war had gone on long enough, and it was time to settle this. But let's not talk through emissaries. Let's talk face-to-face. Always a great idea. Emperor to emperor. Wow. With little in the way of choices, Valerian agreed and marched out of Edessa to meet his rival. How do you think that played out? I don't think it went well for him. I I think the disease that kills him is like lead poisoning, but not lead because they didn't use lead. You know, like <laughs> steel, bronze. <laughs> Valerian was taken prisoner. Yeah, that's a rough one. Yeah. The remaining troops were also taken. <laughs> In one villainous play, Shapur had removed the only thing standing between himself and the Eastern Empire. Now, this is all murky. Mm-hmm. Some sources claim Valerian was taken in battle. Some claim that he lived his life, uh, lived the rest of his life in moderate luxury as kind of a prisoner guest. The troops were also believed to have been spared and used as construction workers, given that Roman soldiers were highly skilled in many fields. Right. There's actually a dam out east called the Caesar's Dam, something to mm-hmm. that effect, mm-hmm. to this day. And it is speculated that they built it. Other stories, however, do not paint a good end for Valerian. He would have been in his late 60s by this point, and it is claimed that Shapur used him as a footstool for climbing oh, onto his horse. The yeah. story. The story. <laughs> it is also said that he was kept in a cage and faced constant humiliation for Shapur's personal entertainment. Nice. He may also have been flayed alive, forced to swallow molten gold like Crassus mm. centuries earlier, mm-hmm. or had his skin removed after his death and then stuffed to be kept as a trophy. All of this is unknown. And it's speculated that later Christian writers made up all the horrible stuff as a way of showing what happens to those who go against God. Oh, yeah. That is real murky trying to get history when you start involving all the powers and the... Right. It's weird that something um, as huge as the only Roman emperor taken alive by an enemy ever Mm -hmm, isn't mm -hmm. some highly recorded, you know, look what we did. We caught him and here's how he lived out his life thing. It's just kind of like, we don't know. It happened. Yeah. Yeah. Either way. The fact is that Rome had just had its lead emperor taken alive by their greatest enemy, who now had free reign to do as he pleased. Valerian had ruled for seven years. Dang. You missed on that one. I think so sure far did. you've only got one, but you got Gordian the third, like, I spot did. I nailed on. the one that I got. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, Gallienus, by this point, had been fighting almost constantly in the West for seven years. Two years prior... His son and heir was likely murdered by the man he had appointed to protect him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, his father, the head of the family and the empire, was captured and presumed dead. It's all falling apart. Oh, and with all that turmoil, Ingenis decided that now would be an excellent time to rise up and declare himself emperor. It is a good time. It is. It's 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 probably the best time. Uh, Everything that I'm going to talk about from here on out. Is like it might have happened in this year. It might have happened two years earlier. It might have happened a year later. Mm, we don't know. It's all muddled. It's all muddled. So this might have happened right after Valerian II's death two mm. years earlier. But we're going to say it happened in 260. Before Gallienus headed out to deal with this latest development, he laid out a few edicts since he was now in charge of the show. Mm-hmm. Valerian had pissed off the senators by ordering their Christian members expelled. But Gallienus had a more pragmatic decree according to Aurelius Victor, who was a later historical uh, historian, excuse me. 
members of the senatorial rank could no longer serve in the military. Hmm. Interesting. John Bray devotes a lot of time in his book, Gallienus, a study in reform and sexual politics, discussing that evidence for the decree is scant at best. But it would appear that Gallienus, at the very least, limited senatorial participation in the legions. Senators still held governorships, which gave them mm-hmm. military command, but the emperor chose to appoint highly capable equestrians as the leaders of his mm. forces. And perhaps that is exactly what they needed during these troubling times. We'll save his other important edict for the end of the show. Gallienus readied himself to leave the Rhine frontier to go fight this upstart emperor in Genus. To help keep things calm in the region, he left his younger son, Saloninus, who had also been named Caesar at Valerian's command, in Cologne. Like I mentioned before, Saloninus was still a teenager, and so had a guardian and mentor looking after him. Silvanus. That really well the first time. It did. Ingenis was a really good protector. Yeah. Yep. Silvanus may or may not have been a Praetorian prefect. We don't know. Gallienus moved quickly to intercept Ingenis' troops as they marched toward Italy. His general, Aurelius, whom Gallienus personally discovered and elevated to high positions of command, led a large contingent of cavalry and was able to successfully defeat Ingenis's legions at the Battle of Mursa in modern Croatia. This cavalry appears to have been an in- innovation by Gallienus and Aurelius. Since there was always some dire emergency that needed immediate attention, it appears that a reserve army was kept near Milan in northern Italy. Little is certain, and Adrian Goldsworthy, who is a renowned author of Ancient Rome, seems unconvinced that this backup army was comprised mostly of cavalry. Other sources, however, state that having so much cavalry was the very reason that Gallienus was able to so quickly respond to all these invasions and usurpations. Anyway, Aurelius defeated Ingenis, and Ingenis then wandered off to drown himself in a river. <laughs> Couldn't fall on his sword like a proper Roman. Lazy. Gallienus then took a deep breath. The immediate threat was resolved, and now he could focus on redistributing his troops along the frontiers. Uh, wait, was that a knock on the door? A messenger walked into the bedraggled emperor's room, and the look on his face did not bode well. Awesome, another problem. Well, it would seem that Ingenis pulling his troops off the line, and Gallienus subsequently pulling his troops off the line, uh. <laughs> left the border wide open, yeah. and the Alamanni walked right into Gaul. That makes sense when you remove all the troops. Yeah. yeah. A nice quote from John Bray about how difficult Gallienus's position was when dealing with these invasions. Quote, When the barrier is weakened in one place by the withdrawal of forces to meet a threat elsewhere, it gives way in that place to renewed pressure from outside. It was like trying to stop a river flood with a limited number of sandbags. When one gap is plugged, another Mm -hmm. opens. Mm -hmm. To make the parallel complete, we would have to reckon that on not only the external waters, but also rebellious eruptions in fountains in the rear, demanding the diversion of men and materials in short supply from the levee on the banks. Yeah. Anyway, this mass incursion of barbarians was, to put it lightly, not good. (laughs) Right. It would seem that at least one band of Franks made it all the way to southern Spain. Dang, they just ran in there. It just kept walking. Yeah. But Gallienus had concerns closer to home. A large group of Jethungi mm. marched south and managed to penetrate into Italy. Oh, wow. Okay. This was the first deep push into the peninsula by a foreign invader since Hannibal crossed the Alps 500 years yeah, earlier. It's been a minute. This horde, which some sources claim was 300,000 strong, which Mm. we can assume is 
a probably little, an exaggeration. Yeah, a little escalated. Marched all the way to the outskirts of Rome. Ooh. The senators, as they had done when Thrax marched into Italy, prepared to defend the Eternal City. They mustered as many men as they could, likely organizing the Praetorians to fend off the invaders. To the shock of many, I am sure, they were victorious. Yeah, yeah. This would not be the day barbarians sacked Rome. Ha. As the Alamanni and Jethungi and all the others retreated north, they were intercepted by Gallienus and his reserve army somewhere near Milan. The emperor scored another major victory and chased the barbarians back out of Italy. Though the numbers are very dodgy, it is certain that the Romans had been greatly outnumbered. Mm -hmm. This victory would keep the Alamanni at bay for at least a decade. I saw both reports that this was Jethungi and Alamanni. And I don't know the difference, so I put them both Just in. put them together. Yep, yeah. they're it's, all the same it's thing. Fine. <laughs> Let's take a moment to talk about cities. And let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. What do you think of when you think of ancient Roman cities? What might come to mind when we talk about enemies approaching a city? Uh, uh, I don't know. Walls. Walls. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> Most would think, ah, yes. They have walls, and they have garrisons of men to defend the walls. Yeah, I mean, you'd think uh, generally, but I don't think they had walls in many places at all. Correct. Except for, like, border cities and probably the capital. That's exactly right. (laughs) Adrian Goldsworthy says, quote, Hardly any cities within the empire possessed modern fortifications. Most cities were unwalled and Mm -hmm. scarcely had any garrison to man whatever defenses they did possess. They were vulnerable, and the news of attacks on other communities can only have increased nervousness. Yeah. (laughs) This makes sense when you think about it. The Empire had known mostly internal peace for centuries at Mm -hmm, this point. mm -hmm. Sure, old cities may have had walls back in the day, but as the cities grew and attacks never happened, the walls stayed where they were, and the city just kind of grew around them. Mm -hmm. So there were no fortifications, and this was true even in Rome itself. The city had outgrown its ancient walls years ago. Anyway, let's get back to Gallienus, who had now fought the Franks, who invaded Gaul, the Alamanni, who invaded Italy, and put down the revolt of Ingenis, all in the span of about a year. So now it's time for another revolt. Yay! This one came from the provinces in the Balkans, like so many others that we will see. The man in charge was Regalianus. We know almost nothing about his reason for rising up and declaring himself emperor. Most historians assume it was the usual resentment of the population who felt that their emperor was too far away and too busy to protect them. Their lands were overrun with barbarians and Gallienus was off fighting other barbarians in Gaul. How dare he? Yeah, this would be a running trend for years to come. Mm -hmm. Whatever the reason, Regalianus ruled in his territory for something like six months, never seeing Gallienus' legions on the horizon, which may lend credence to the theory that Gallienus had his hands too full. To save Pannonia and Moesia at that time. Probably did. Yeah. Fortunately for him, after these six months, Regalianus met his fate at the hands of yet another invading barbarian group. These were the Roxolani, who were an offshoot of the Sarmatians. They plunged into Pannonia and took the city of Sirmium, killing Regalianus in the process. There is some speculation that the Roxolani were in cahoots with Gallienus to come in and remove his rival for a nice deal with the Empire. Most historians don't buy that. And it is believed that Gallienus did eventually go out there and kick the crap out of them, too. That'd be really tough. The span the span of territory to like get that plan formulated and executed while you're literally in like two other wars right now. Right. I don't yeah. know. Seems a little dicey at best. Yeah. 
And when your whole issue is that barbarians keep invading yeah. your land, why <laughs> yeah. would you invite more barbarians yeah. to come invade your land? Yeah, it doesn't add up. Math ain't mathin'. Yeah, I will say, uh, we'll get to this later, but most ancient sources hate Gallienus. Hmm. Uh, modern historians really like Gallienus. Yeah. So he gets painted in a bad light. Now, some might be wondering, hey, what has Shapur been up to since he captured Valerian? He had been he had seen his defeat of the large Roman army and the capture of the emperor as his ticket to free conquest. So let's look at how that played out. With the gates wide open, Shapur claims to have sacked 36 cities across Cilicia oh and God. Cappadocia, which is modern Turkey. Even if Gallienus had wanted to lead his troops east to stop him, he couldn't have. Mm -hmm. The invasions of Gaul, Spain, Pannonia, and Italy were far more pressing, and he could not leave those regions exposed. I mean, we saw that he tried to fight off one invasion and three more happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But there were plenty of men out east who would not stand idly by while Persians ransacked their homes. One of these men was called Fulvius Macrianus Major, and he had been the head of Valerian's treasury. He was out east with Valerian during the war, but had not been present when the army was defeated and Valerian captured. Along with a military commander named Ballista, who may also have been a Praetorian prefect, Macrianus decided to take matters into his own hands. For reasons that are not entirely clear, both of these men felt that they themselves could not wear the purple. The thought was that Ballista was too old and Macrianus was infirm or otherwise disabled, possibly in his leg. So it was decided that Macrianus's two sons, the younger Macrianus and Quietus, would be joint emperors. These men were in their 30s and had been appointed military tribunes by Valerian. Mm. Coins from the time imply that pretty much all of the Eastern Empire was on board with this plan. The old issue of provinces feeling neglected by their emperor, because he was so preoccupied, led them to support those who were close and ready to save them. There were two key tasks for these usurpers at that moment. Defeat the Persians in the East, and defeat Gallienus in the West. Fortunately for them, Gallienus was, at that moment, deeply distracted by another revolt that was taking place in Gaul. We'll get to that revolt in a moment, but now seems like a good time to tell you what the Historia Augusta calls this period, the 30 tyrants or pretenders of Gallienus. That's a lot. Yeah, that number is a huge exaggeration. Yeah. <laughs> Most of those people don't exist, but yeah, you get the idea. Mm -hmm. This is a running theme for Gallienus's reign. And while we are discussing the misery faced by the emperor, I think it's important to consider the damage being done to the people of the empire during this time. Bray has a nice quote that sums it up. Once again, the inhabitants of Asia Minor had to endure the passage of an army with all its accompaniments of requisitions wrung from an exhausted land at the best and murder, pillage and rape at the worst. Famine and plague were no doubt still extant. The background of unceasing human misery to the procession of armies, Roman or barbarian, in the foreground should never be forgotten. So while we're like, oh, poor Gallienus, you keep having to deal with these usurpations, the people are really suffering as a result of it. So we, we should bear no that in mind. Stability. Yeah, no so. stability, famine, plague, mm -hmm. armies. Not great. Not a great time. It's like it's a crisis or something. Anyway, Macrianus and his elder son set off west to attack Gallienus, while Quietus and Ballista were sent east to deal with Shapur. As I mentioned, Gallienus himself was busy with another revolt, so sent his top dog, Aurelius, to deal with the Macrianae. 
As Macrianus marched west, he was joined by several detachments from many legions, and the entirety of the Pannonian legions joined his side. These were the guys who had revolted under Regalianus and were still pissed that the Roxolani had killed him and left them with no leader. Mm. Estimates put this army at 45,000 strong, and we are not sure which troops were under Aurelius or how many he had. However, Zanaris gives us some detail as to how this all played out. As the fighting took place, Aurelius made certain to grant quarter to any men who were captured or surrendered. This, along with a level of kinship between the soldiers, led to one of the standard bearers on the Macriani side laying down his standard. Soon, the rest followed, and most of the legions switched sides. The Pannonian legions were fearful of surrender because they had revolted twice in like a year. <laughs> they didn't think that they were going to be given quarter. But Macrianus, seeing that he was lost, requested the Pannonians execute him and his son. This would save them from torture and execution at the hands of Aurelius, and possibly give the Pannonians enough credit to not be executed themselves. The troops obliged. Aurelius did grant the Pannonians pardon and sent all the legions back to their provinces to man the borders. Guys, just keep the barbarians out. Yeah, for real. The Balkan provinces returned to Gallienus's fold, as did many in Asia Minor, but Quietus and Ballista were still out in the east. For the moment, Gallienus simply did not have the resources to go and deal with them. But there was a man out east who could go and deal with them. In the middle of Syria, the important trade hub of Palmyra had long been a valuable regional center. One of the nobles of this ancient city was a man called Odonathus. We don't have time to go deep into his rise, but suffice it to say that he rose in prominence and eventually became the leading figure of the region. His family had become Roman citizens when Caracalla had made almost everyone citizens, and they had been elevated to the senatorial class because they were rich. That works, yeah. That's usually how things go in yeah. societies. Possibly in 257 or 258 CE, two or three years before Valerian's capture, we have inscriptions stating Odonathus was a consul. This could also have related to him being governor. We're not really sure. Mm. Upon the capture of Valerian, it seems Odonathus declared himself king of Palmyra, though he did not declare independence from the empire. For the moment, he would be a subject or partner king of the Romans. There are sources that claim Odonathus reached out to Shapur to offer alliance or perhaps simply to offer a peace deal. The wars with Persia had obviously hit the trade center very hard, and Odonathus may have simply wished to put an end to the fighting. Whatever the truth, Shapur and Odonathus did not come together. <laughs> Instead, no. Odonathus would become a thorn in Shapur's side. Now, Ballista and Quietus managed to claim a solid victory against the Persians at Pompe uh, Pompeiopolis in south-central Anatolia, which sent Shapur and his army running back east toward their captured lands. Shapur would make another push into Anatolia after Ballista moved away into Syria, but he would eventually head back into his home territory. Before he got there, though, he was shocked to find Odonathus standing at the head of a sizable army. This army was likely comprised of Palmyrene soldiers and a handful of Roman legionaries. Some sources claim this was a peasant army, but what comes next casts that theory into doubt. In late 260 CE, Odonathus fell upon Shapur's forces west of the Euphrates. Now, instead of the Persians returning to their homes in good order, they were forced into a humiliating retreat. <laughs> 
After this great victory, it appears Odonathus sat in Syria and waited to see how things would pan out with Gallienus and Macrianus. Once Macrianus was defeated and killed in the west, Odonathus made his decision and backed Gallienus. Nice. With this open pledge of loyalty to the Roman Emperor, Odonathus rallied his troops once again in mid-261 CE. He marched toward Emesa, where the usurper and his Praetorian prefect were waiting. The stories are a bit confused, but here's how we will say it, this all played out. As Odonathus and his army approached Emesa, the city initially declared that they would not open their gates. But eventually, they changed their minds and took matters into their own hands. The people of the city murdered Quietus and opened hmm. the gates for Odonathus. They're like, no, no, no. We don't need another siege. We okay. don't want this, guys. Just, can you just stop fighting? Ballista was then captured and executed by the king of Palmyra, who is now the most powerful man in the Roman East. Mm -hmm. For his great work and his loyalty to Gallienus, the emperor bestowed many honors upon Odonathus. The two honors most historians point to as the big ones were Dux Romanorum, which means commander of the Romans, and Corrector Totius Orientis, which mm. means corrector of the eastern provinces. What level of authority these titles actually brought is up for debate, but obviously Gallienus could not stop Odonathus if he decided that these titles brought all the authority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Gallienus chose to honor him and hope that he stayed loyal. And just a reminder... All that we have just discussed has happened within about a year of Valerian That's being captured. So much. And we're not done. Oh, my God. Okay. So the East is about as secure as Gallienus could hope for it to be. But as I mentioned, he was busy during the revolt of Macrianus dealing with another revolt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This was around the time that Gallienus was fighting off that Jethungai invasion in Italy. He had defeated this force around Mediolanum, Milan, but they were still retreating to their lands with, quote, many thousands of Italian prisoners. As this band headed northeast, they ran into another Roman force, apparently under the command of a man called Genialis. We know this from an inscription found a couple decades ago. Genialis defeated the horde and rescued the prisoners. Then, according to David S. Potter in his book, The Roman Empire at Bay, the governor of Lower Germany divvied up the loot from these barbarians and handed it out to the men. This governor was called Posthumus. And, as we have seen time and time again, those who pay the soldiers are usually declared emperor. Mm -hmm. But that did not happen immediately. Recall that I mentioned Gallienus' two sons being declared Caesar back while Valerian was still alive. Valerian II had been placed in Illyria and murdered shortly before Ingenis had risen up. The younger son, Salonidas, had been placed in Cologne. Well, Salonidas and his advisor, Silvanus, appear to have decided that Posthumus had no right to hand out all that wealth to the men. They ordered him to return it to them. And you can probably guess how that played out. <laughs> we can kill you instead. Yep. <laughs> Posthumus made a grand show of rejecting this command and readied his army for a fight. It was at this point that the men declared him emperor and they set out to besiege Cologne. <laughs> of course. Yeah. This took no time at all since they had all the troops. And by, Jul uh, and by July 260 CE, Caesar Saloninus and Prefect Silvanus were slaughtered by the mm -hmm. army and Cologne was taken. Yeah. To quote Potter, by the end of the summer, Posthumus controlled not only the province of the Rhineland, but also the inland provinces of Gaul, excepting Norbonennis in the south and Britain. Posthumus immediately sent out word of his intentions. 
He was not in this to remove Gallienus and march on Rome. He did not wish to take over the whole of the empire. His objective was to do what the last handful of emperors simply could not, secure the damn border. Good. He vowed to hold the Rhine frontier and defend it properly and stop letting all these barbarians run amok. And you know what? He did a really good job at it. Over the next couple of years, all of Gaul, Britain, and Spain would come over to Posthumus's side. By 262 CE, Posthumus ruled roughly a quarter of the Roman Empire. Nice. Naturally, when Gallienus heard of his son's murder and Posthumus's revolt, he prepared his forces to invade this new, quote, Gallic Empire, which is what modern historians call it, but they just viewed themselves as the empire under new management. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, almost as if to prove Posthumus's point, Gallienus was prevented from invading due to yet another barbarian invasion that pulled a large number of troops away. Now, this story may be apocryphal, but one writer claims that Gallienus sent a message to Posthumus saying, hey, why don't you just open the pass through the Alps and we'll go duke this out, mano y mano, <laughs> see who's stronger. Obviously, Posthumus did not take him up on this and uh, said he didn't wish to spill Roman blood. Mm. Gallienus then followed up by saying, fine, let's settle it with single combat then. Posthumus replied, quote, I am not a gladiator nor do I intend to become one. I have preserved those provinces whose safety you entrusted to me. I have been elected emperor by the Gauls. It is enough for me if I reign over those who have voluntarily chosen me, and I shall do that to the limit of my strength and ability. What a response. You can't help but like Posthumus, yeah, even, like even if you like Gallienus as well. Now, like I said, this timeline's kind of all over the place and jumping over each other, but to be clear, Gallienus was preparing to go fight Posthumus when word of Macrianus's revolt came in from the east. So, as we saw earlier, Aurelius was sent off to beat Macrianus and his eldest son, who lost and then died. Mm. It is speculated that Gallienus attempted to invade Gaul while Aurelius dealt with Macrianus, but his limited forces led to failure. Once Aurelius returned victorious, the two combined their forces and pushed into Gaul once again. This time, Posthumus was soundly defeated and had to take flight. Aurelius was given command of the pursuit and Gallienus broke off to deal with another crisis. And it is at this time that we begin to see the potential cracks in the unity of Gallienus and his top general. It is speculated that Aurelius deliberately allowed Posthumus to escape, mm. thus allowing, allowing him to regather his strength. Some ancient historians chalk this up to carelessness, but most believe, with the power of hindsight, <laughs> that it was intentional. Gallienus would return a couple years later to continue his attempts to put this revolt down. But in the usual order of the crisis period, there was another revolt mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. demanded immediate attention. When the Macrianai had risen up, much of the eastern provinces had joined them, including Egypt. And as we have seen, Egypt was the breadbasket of Italy and therefore could not be left in enemy hands. Fortunately, after Aurelius defeated Macrianus, Alexandria, the capital of Egypt, fell back in line. We know this because the mint in the city began producing coins for Gallienus sometime around 261 or 262. Hmm. However, the man Valerian had put in charge of Egypt before his capture had been a big supporter of Macrianus and felt that he was in too deep to give up power. This man was Aemilianus. 
And he had been appointed around the time Valerian had issued his edicts on the Christians. Mm. Emilianus was the bad guy sent to punish the Christians who would not obey the decrees. <laughs> As we saw under Decius, Alexandria had been a hotbed of anti-Christian violence during the initial decree, and the same was true under Valerian. Emilianus declared himself emperor in Alexandria, but it appears that the city did not fully support him. Accounts from the bishop there described the city as totally divided, and he claimed that it was easier to walk from one side of the empire to the other than to cross the main street of Alexandria. Oof, that's a warring city right there. Yeah, so the city was in revolt, and uh, the mint must have been on the Gallienus side yeah. of the street because they kept making coins. <laughs> mm -hmm. As I said, Egypt could not be left in enemy hands, so Gallienus sent his general Theodotus to deal with the usurper. Theodotus defeated the enemy army near Thebes, and it is said that he was merciless against those he captured. Makes sense. Emilianus himself was shipped back to Gallienus, who subsequently had him strangled to death. <laughs> okay, we're now in 262 CE. Valerian was captured in 260. That's so much. So much. So much that's happened. <laughs> but this also means that Gallienus had now ruled for a decade. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as was customary, uh, Decenalia was held in his honor. I figured now, with a little breathing space, we could take a look at who Gallienus was as a man, since we've been looking at him almost entirely as a general up to this point. We saw a snippet of his personality when he challenged Posthumus to single combat. John Bray, who is my principal source on this section, believes that Gallienus would truly have fought Posthumus one-on-one, -on -one, giving us insight into his brashness and confidence. The ancient sources in Latin, as I said, absolutely hate Gallienus. This might come as a surprise, since I've been kind of painting a pretty positive picture of him. Uh, he is accused by most of being indifferent to public affairs and the safety of the empire, which is quite silly, since he's True. literally been fighting enemies constantly. Yeah, spending his entire time just trying to get enemies out. Yeah. Some accuse him of cowardice for not immediately marching east to save or avenge his father. But every time he moved his troops, barbarian hordes just came flooding in or mm -hmm. usurpers rose up. Bray claims that while Gallienus did in fact care for the well-being of the state, he likely gave an outward appearance of indifference. A quote, The desire to shock the humorless and conventional is strong in certain temperaments, but a ruler of a great state possessing such a temperament would do well to suppress the desire. So basically... Gallienus was flamboyant and liked to push people's buttons, <laughs> which pissed off the crotchety old senators. He was also a poet, and while we do not know much about his life prior to becoming emperor, it seems possible that he was the lazy son of a powerful senatorial father who liked to write poems and drink and have a good time. For someone like that to then rise up and tell the senators that they could not serve in the military is certain to have gotten him written off as a lazy tyrant in history. Mm -hmm. But back to the Decenalia. Gallienus, as mentioned, was flamboyant and by some accounts effeminate. He was also a proponent of the lower classes, as exemplified by the aforementioned equestrian appointment to high military positions. This showed itself in his procession through the streets of Rome during his celebration, which featured a lot of oddities. <laughs> These included captured peoples from the campaigns, slaves, and 1,200 gladiators dressed in drag. Wow. Yeah. The, quote, degenerate procession was followed by stage plays, another great love of the emperor. 
A quote from Brower within Bray's book, the buffoons put on performances, probably as pornographic as they were farcical, having to do with the ludicrous figure of the Cyclops, and the crowd loved the whole thing. Gallienus must be a good emperor if he could provide such pleasure for his people. That's right. Yes. We don't know the details of what was so pornographic about it, but that is another recurring feature of the slander against Gallienus, that he was a fun-loving pervert. This man. He's pretty dope. One story from the Historia Augusta claims a bit of a darker side to Gallienus, which may or may not be true. As we will see soon, Odonathus sent some of his Persian prisoners to Rome for this celebration, which may also have been a triumph. So mm, his 10-year celebration mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a triumph for the victory out east. During the processions the days prior, several tricksters had attempted to goad Gallienus by calling out the names of some of the usurpers he had defeated, which is, you know, not a very safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. When this did not work because Gallienus was apparently a very fun-loving person and didn't get worked up, they joined in the line of Persian prisoners and began asking where Gallienus's father was. Oh, wow. Just trying to push those buttons. And they did. (laughs) The story goes that Gallienus had these men burned alive. Yeah. Now, John Bray points out that this was actually pretty standard rule of law being carried out. You insulting the emperor was a capital offense mm-hmm. and Gallienus wouldn't have had to go, Hey, I want these guys burned to death. He would have said, arrest those men. Mm-hmm. Trial mm-hmm. would have happened. They would have been executed by a standard burning to death. But, um, you know, that's a little bit tyrannical by modern standards. Sure. Yeah. Now we won't dive too much deeper into his personal life because this episode is already going to be pretty long, but it is likely that Gallienus was a highly energetic man with large tastes for adventure, sex, and good times. During, isn't? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I would have had the energy that this man had to keep doing all the <laughs> shit that he was doing. During the upcoming years of not constant invasion and usurpation that we are about to see, he likely did live it up as a proper emperor, partying, having a good time. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he has been fighting for a decade against insurmountable odds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So after a couple of years of chilling in Rome and just relaxing around the Near East provinces to ensure things were in good order, Gallienus once again turned his attention and energy toward Gaul and his rival Posthumus. In 265 or 263, it's hard to tell, as in the first campaign, Gallienus was very successful and managed to force Posthumus to retreat to the safety of one of his cities. This city was then besieged. All looked to be going very well when tragedy struck. And it struck in the form of an arrow in Gallienus's back. No. The emperor was rushed off the field and likely returned to friendly territory in the hopes that he would recover. And he, he did. did. Oh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. But the momentum of his invasion of Gaul would not recover, either due to lack of energy by the generals involved or thanks to the resolve of the Gallic defenders, Gallienus would never reclaim the Gallic Empire tragic okay let's head back east to see what has been going on these past few years while gallienus was dealing with all these revolts as we saw earlier odonathus had defeated sharpur and his army as they were heading back to persia in 262 odonathus began his invasion of persia in earnest the fighting was hard but they eventually made it to tesiphon and laid siege 
Many battles and skirmishes were fought, but eventually the siege was lifted and Odonathus headed back home, essentially the victor. This was a major victory. Shapur had invaded in 252 CE, so a decade of war in the east looked to be at an end. Carhai and Nisibis and all the other captured Roman lands were restored to the empire. Out of respect, Odonathus sent those Persian prisoners to Rome, like I said, Gallienus paraded them through the streets during his triumph. I have not mentioned all the titles Gallienus has been accruing with all of his victories, Germanicus Maximus, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like 10 times, but now he added Persicus Maximus to that list. Shortly after this, Odonathus got himself a new title as well. King of Kings. Oh. Now this might sound like an attempt to break away from the empire and declare himself independent, which he likely could have done, but this was not the case. King of Kings was the title of Eastern monarchs, like the Persians. So this was a dig at Shapur. Hmm. And Pat Southern points out, quote, he employed Eastern methods to govern the Eastern populations, using titles to which they were accustomed and in which they had faith. The full meaning would be appreciated in all the Eastern cities and settlements. This was a big middle finger to Shapur. Yeah, a smart move, really. So the East was, at long last, at peace. We will leave Odonathus and the East for the rest of the episode, kind of. I would just like to point out, that there is someone very important standing next to Odonathus throughout all his campaigns and his rise to royalty. His wife, Zenobia. Keep her name in mind. As I mentioned earlier, aside from Posthumus still holding the Gallic Empire, Gallienus experienced a few relatively peaceful years after 262. He traveled around the empire and fulfilled his usual roles as emperor. He also lived the high life and enjoyed the luxuries of rule. Sometime around 266 to 267, the Goths made another naval invasion of Asia Minor. In this invasion, they destroyed the Temple of Artemis at Euphesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Dang. Yeah. Odonathus may have been out east campaigning against the Persians at this time and whipped his troops around to deal with this invasion. It was at this time that Odonathus was murdered. (gasps) More on that next time. Fortunately for Gallienus, it appears the Goths heard Odonathus was on his way, and so they fled back across the Black Sea. Next came the Herulian invasion fleet, which landed sometime in mid-267 CE. They marched around wreaking havoc on the Near East, possibly even taking Byzantium. They certainly managed to take Athens, but were defeated at sea at some point and possibly pushed back on land by local forces. Shortly after this initial victory, Gallienus arrived with his own forces and joined with the local defenders. His cavalry detachment, which had been led for years by Aurelius, was now led by a new man. Maybe. It's all a little bit murky. That man was called Claudius. Also in this fighting force was another man we would be wise to remember. Aurelian. Mm. Gallienus found great success and pushed the Heruli, I think that's what you'd call them, back north. But Gallienus' problems were not over. So remember his most loyal general, Aurelius, who likely allowed Posthumus to escape during his first campaign. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Gallienus would have been wise to take that as a sign to be rid of the commander he had discovered and raised up. Word soon reached the front that Aurelius had gone into revolt. But not to declare himself emperor. Instead, he declared himself a deputy of Gallienus's rival, Posthumus. There it is. Yeah. What a dick. Mm-hmm. It seems likely that Gallienus had placed Aurelius in charge either as governor of Raetia or as a general in that province. 
He took his forces out of the province and marched back to Milan, where the remaining cavalry detachment he had once led were stationed. Gallienus hastened back from the Balkans and the Heruli campaign to deal with this threat to Italy. A short distance from Milan, the two former friends and allies met in battle. It was a decisive victory for Gallienus. Yes. And Aurelius was forced to retreat behind the fortifications of Milan. The city was besieged, and it looked like Posthumus was in no position to come and relieve his deputy. And then Gallienus died. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's tragedy. Huge tragedy. So, what do you think of our boy? He's got a rough life, man. Yeah. He'd be out here trying real hard for trying a real long so time. So hard. He's just like trying to hold together. It's like we got war everywhere. Could you please just stop trying to kill us from within? Thank you. We, if we could unite, we'd be doing fine. Yeah, could you, could you please just hold the border so we can get this back? That'd be great. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our rounds. Mastery of military might. So we don't need to go into too much detail here. Uh, the, almost the entire reign of Gallienus was spent <laughs> fighting off barbarians and mm -hmm, usurpers. Mm -hmm. So far as I can tell, whenever Gallienus was leading, his forces came out on top. He was a very good general. He also recognize, recognized the military acumen of Aurelius and appointed him head of this new cavalry division that was instrumental in putting down many of the revolts and incursions. Now, you might be wondering at the lack of Praetorians in this story. They were mentioned once. Mm -hmm. David Potter points out that Gallienus seems to have formed a new bodyguard called the Comitas, or Comitatus, excuse me, which is a smart play given the role Praetorians played in the downfall of so many emperors. As Potter put it, quote, the guard retained its old structure, its old privileges, and its old quarters. And that may be the point of the new entity. Neither Valerian nor Gallienus was in any position to disturb that powerful force, nor could either of them easily do without the trained manpower within its ranks. But it was a conservative institution, deeply attached to its past, and not a likely vehicle for operational innovation. Praetorians weren't really soldiers mm -hmm. and hadn't been for a long time. And what Gallienus need while he was needed while he was riding around fighting were soldiers protecting him. This touches on another point about Gallienus's military reforms. He blocked the senators from serving. Instead, he appointed the best men for the job, and that certainly helped in his successes. Yeah. Bear in mind also that it does not seem likely that Gallienus had much in the way of military experience prior to becoming emperor at age 40. He then spent the rest of his life fighting and fighting and fighting. Yeah, nonstop. Just rushing from one area to the other, stemming leaks and breaches. All in all, highly successful military leader. Mm -hmm. So what do we think for a score? It's hard-pressed hard not to give him a 10 yeah. with all the adversity he faced and did not, like, get conquered. Yep, I agree. Every, every time he lost, it was because something betrayed him. Yeah, it's because the other people, whatever. Yep. I'm like, oh, yeah, they uh, they uh, were revolting again. I know you're busy fighting and winning this war, but there's another one now. And then there's another one over there. Like, and and he was it. doing this all with limited resources. Oh, yeah. Because he was spread so thin the mm -hmm. whole time. So, yeah, I give him a 10. Yeah. It, it's not even a not even a difficult Gotta one for me. Give him a 10. Yeah. Excellent. Well, on to the next. Terrible tyranny. So there's not much in the way of terrible or tyrannical behavior. The Senate certainly didn't like him, but he is not responsible for any like mass executions or even the slaughter of enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, his, one of his generals is noted for slaughtering the enemies at Thebes, 
And that's because it was in stark contrast to the way Gallienus dealt with things. Clemency seems to have been his go-to, as evidenced by his allowing Aurelius to stay in command. Um, he also undid one of the major things that his father had done, which we'll talk about in Lives of the Living. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't really have much. Uh, he pissed off the senators. Yeah, but that's because he was doing things, like, correctly. Maybe not yeah. correctly. He was trying to do things in the best way, mm-hmm. not the the right way as the Senate wants. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, there's probably something. I doubt he was perfect. Um, I'll give him a one. Yeah. All right, so that's a, a two one. for terrible tyranny. Lives of the living. So, a quote from John Bray. As soon as he became sole emperor, if not before, Gallienus moved to dismantle the oppressive structure of persecution against the Christians his father had erected in their joint names. Gallienus had not approved of his father's harsh edicts in 257 and 258. They were counterproductive and cruel in his eyes. Mm -hmm. We have a surviving official edict which was sent to the bishops of Alexandria, which highlights that Gallienus allowed them to return from exile and to reclaim their churches and properties. This would lead to what is known as the little peace of the church, which was a 40-year period where Christianity, while not wholly accepted, was not targeted by the state. Gallienus also brought about some level of stability to the empire, or at least the areas he maintained under his control. Mm -hmm. During the crisis, his is the longest continued reign. Mm -hmm. Cons. Everything was still falling <laughs> apart. Yes, everything was terrible. Yeah. Um, I'm calling this episode Hitting Rock Bottom <laughs> because that is pretty much where we are at the end of his life. The Gallic Empire remained separate from Gallienus's empire, and the East was under Palmyrene control and only part of the empire because Odonathus was honorable. Mm-hmm. If he had said, this is mine now, what could Gallienus yeah. have done? And s- spoilers. That happens next week. Yeah, I'm guessing the person who replaces that man is like, ooh, mine. Yes. So, plague also continued to sweep everywhere. The economy did not recover. Posthumus yeah. was able to create far superior coins to those minted by Gallienus. Usurpations and invasions happened throughout his reign. And while he did all he could to alleviate these struggles, the lives of his people were still pretty rough. Mm-hmm. A comparison that I kept going back to is he's like Marcus Aurelius, except he didn't have the golden age at his back. He yeah. had the crisis. He at already his back. had an empty treasury and like no resources or people. And yeah, so many years of fighting that there was just, it's like, we don't have enough to, to deal with this anymore. So it's, it's a really tough one. It's like he did all he could, but he just, it wasn't enough. So lives of the living, I think they're, it's probably an improvement over what it had, it had been recently for a lot of lives, but it's hard to go over like a four. Yeah. Cause I feel like, you know, five is kind of maintaining, but he could, he just couldn't. Yeah. No, he threw lack of, no lack of trying, but he just couldn't. Yeah. So I think I'm going to give him a four. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. Yeah. Like you said, no lack of trying. But unfortunately, it, just, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't enough. Yeah, sometimes trying just ain't good enough. Yeah, I'll match you on that. We'll go with four. So that is an eight for Lives of the Living, which is actually the same as Elagabalus, which is kind of sad. But. I mean, he inherited terrible. Yeah. So like, hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> yep. Poor 
Emperor Gallienus. He is honestly my favorite, like, unknown emperor. Makes sense. Departing demise. Mm-hmm. So we left Gallienus as he besieged Mediolanum, which is Milan. Here is what Bray had to say about the emperor's state of mind at that time. Quote, Bitterness and self-reproach must have consumed his heart. Bitterness at his own chosen instruments, the cavalry corps, the Milan Central Army, the city where he had con- concentrated it, the favored and forgiven general should have been turned against him. Self-reproach that he should have been weak enough to present Aurelius with the opportunity to betray him for a second time. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. You it, just wish, but like, man, I gave you a break. Can we just have a good country? Can we <laughs> stop betraying me, <laughs> yeah. please? Gallienus, despite his like well-known energy, mm-hmm. was probably exhausted by the God, betrayals at this so. point. Yeah. Though he had spent several years in relative peace, much of his reign had been dominated by people wanting him gone, despite all the work he put in to right the troubles of the empire. But there were still men who wished to see him dead. And, as it happened, a handful of them were in his military tent at that moment. Mm-hmm. Claudius had been promoted from the head of the cavalry to Gallienus's number two. In his place, Aurelian had been placed in charge of the cavalry. After Aurelius was defeated and the siege laid, Aurelian arrived with the cavalry from the east to assist. But these two generals and several other high-ranking men began meeting to discuss the possibility of claiming the empire for themselves. Yeah. The reasons are not fully clear and are likely multifaceted. Claudius was the chosen successor, as we shall see. And it is probable that he and his co-conspirators simply felt they could resolve the issues faced by the realm more effectively than Gallienus. Plus, Gallienus had overseen the loss of the West and basically allowed the East to be ruled by Odonathus and his Palmyrene kingdom. It is worth noting that these men had been brought up thanks to Gallienus mm-hmm. and that their liege had always done well by them with his open hand of honors and rewards. But nothing is ever enough for men with grand ambitions. There are multiple versions of what happened to Gallienus, but here's how we will tell it. One morning, the emperor was awoken by his men and informed that Aureolus had broken through the siege and was mounting an attack. Gallienus called for his horse and quickly mounted, riding off with a handful of cavalrymen and he was not wearing his armor. Oh, no. A short way from camp, Gallienus came across several other horsemen who did not stand aside or show the proper courtesies to their liege. (laughs) When Gallienus demanded to know their purpose, one of them said, to see your reign end. Mm -hmm. Gallienus attempted to break through their lines and flee on his horse, but was soon stuck near a stream that his mount would not cross. A man either Aurelian or a cavalry commander called Cecropius, then ran him through with a spear. Gallienus lingered on for a short while, fully aware that he was bleeding to death. If Claudius's later stories can be believed, Gallienus essentially named him heir in that moment. But somehow, (laughs) I doubt that. (laughs) The emperor died a short while later. He had reigned for 15 years, eight of them solely. I mean that's pretty close. You're, I said fourteen killed by the next guy. You did. So you did. I that mean, was like we'll give you a, we'll give you a half a there. check mark here. Check. That's just yeah. a line. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a line. There we go. So yeah. Ah, oh, poor Gallienus. You know, yeah, so poor guy. I uh, just want to say because I don't think we'll cover, do a full episode on Claudius, but um, my our friend 
gifted me my only Roman coin that mm-hmm. I own, mm-hmm. and it is Claudius. Ah. So I own a coin of the guy responsible for killing my favorite emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Little bittersweet. Little bittersweet. <laughs> okay, so Departing Demise. Uh, I think it's a pretty cool one. It's really sad. Um, Poor guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, assassinated by his men, tried to escape on horse like a badass, killed by a stream via spear. It's pretty, it's pretty neato. Probably give it eight or a nine. Yeah, I was thinking seven or eight, but I'll, I'll go to eight. And I'll go nine, which means that for the last three that we've done, that is the score we have given. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a nine and you gave an eight. They're all going out. Yep. All right, so that is 17 for Departing Demise. Lasting Legacy. Most sources from the time paint Gallienus as a lazy incompetent. But, wild. Yeah, I know. Just wild. I hate it. I hate for it so 15 much. years and Rome didn't get fully conquered and yeah. got some stuff back. Lazy. Yeah. <laughs> Most historians now are very confident that that's not the case at all, as we are. I would uh, honestly compare him to the willpower of Marcus Aurelius, like I said. Just willing to just keep going, despite wanting, perhaps, to live a life of luxury. Oh, he sure just kept he fighting. Yeah. A note uh, by David S. Potter on the declining role of the city of Rome and the ruling class. The balance of power in the city between the people, the Senate, palace, and guard may have been disrupted by the effective removal of the guard and the court from the capital and the diminished role that senators were playing in government. Gallienus, I'll mention this in a little bit, is a big part of the shift away from the old order of things. We will see eventually that Rome becomes irrelevant. Mm. It used to be, if you're not in Rome, you're losing. Right. But we'll see some of the most powerful emperors soon barely go there. It makes sense. Yep. I mean, it's chaos, man. Yeah. It's utter chaos out here. Plus, they you know realize that the Senate has no power if you don't let them have power. And if you're out there with the troops, then you have the power. Yeah. So... Back to that, I mentioned a long time ago that Augustus saw the creation of what is called the Principate period, where the emperor was the first man, but not some divine monarch. Mm. He, he was pretending to not be a monarch. Power was shared, but I'm just on the top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They kept the pretense of the Republic alive for several hundred years in this way. Many point to Gallienus as the beginning framework of the second era of the imperial office, which is the dominant This is where the emperor begins to assume that divine role. I am the living embodiment of the empire. I am divine and I am in charge. Mm. That era will begin actually properly in a few decades. But Gallienus kind of started that trend, which may also be why many senators did not like him. Because he had this era of I'm in charge. Yeah. So obviously... Gallienus is not someone most people have heard of. Had you heard of Gallienus? No. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> he is an obscure emperor who oversaw one of the worst downturns yeah. in the empire's history. That said, his military reforms uh, and ability to keep fighting through constant struggles certainly left their mark. And um, his reforms will carry on. So there's that to consider. We gave him points in mastery and military might for that as well. But mm-hmm. he is changing. Like the legionary system is kind of dying. It is now going to change into this combined cavalry infantry mm, right, yeah, thing. Yeah. So that's that's about it. His legacy <laughs> is is mixed for sure. But 
five or a six. Yeah, I was thinking six at most. Yeah. Because it's just, yeah. It's I'll give tough. him a six. I'll give him a five. Because it's, it's real tough, man. It is. It's so sad. Isn't it sad? Like The amount of people that just hated this man. And he was like, I'm literally just trying to hold it together. I just and want to save the empire. also trying to tear it apart. Can we <laughs> please just save the empire? Oh, okay. So that is an 11 for lasting legacy. And let me get... There we go. Nuh-uh. He said nuh-uh. Well, you totaled it. That can't be and, right. And you're not... <laughs> I don't think that's right. Do you think it's too high or too low? It's way too low. I mean... Oh, I see. I see what happened. I'm doing this uh, in a like an Excel mm-hmm. sheet, and it didn't copy your scores, so it only had oh, mine. Yeah, so it was about, about, about half. Yep. And I was like, that doesn't. that's not right. There we go. Okay. So what do you think he scored? It's still depressingly low. Oh, man. I don't know. It's been a, it's been a while. So El Gabalis got 47. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Who was before that? Caracalla? Yeah, Caracalla got 64. Severus had 67. I want to go with 58. Wow. You got it. I nailed it. Yeah, right, let's cool. go. Perfect. I wasn't even calculating. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. So he got a 58, which is not terrible, but, you know, it's really his uh, lives of the living and tyranny. He wasn't a tyrant. And I mean, well, yeah, and the fact that he just inherited a terrible terrible situation that no one was willing to help make better yeah for real it's like guys can you just help me please yeah it all boils down to people suck people do suck that is very true all right we have two final questions then Mm, the great so the first question is does he deserve the title of the great man it's tough it's really tough if he had better sir if he didn't if he wasn't the emperor in the crisis but then again if he wasn't the emperor in the crisis he might have just been a late he might have actually been lazy and just been like nah i might have been irrelevant at that just point. gonna give into the luxury here and just kind of maintain and yeah. live life happily it sucks because he was tough he was so successful and and failed spectacularly yeah, yeah. yeah. just despite all the odds Ugh. i mean I'm torn. Yeah. He's my favorite, but he also failed. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think I can. Yeah, I just don't think so either. the circumstances. Sorry, Galliators. It's Galeadis. unfortunate, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I think we're both leaning towards the unfortunate no. Mm-hmm. Damn. All right, so no great. Damn it. It's real close, though. Yeah. So I only have a few epithets for him. Um, the failed savior. Yeah. The one who tried. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, that's, that's pretty good. That's and then the, my least favorite word, the indefatigable. All right. I hate that word, but it's it fits him <laughs> so much. It. I don't want it. I like the one who tried. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I think that fits perfectly. Yeah. Because he tried so hard. He tried so hard. He even he just gave a betrayer a second. Like, Listen, okay, I'm not going to kill you. Just stop. Just stop betraying got me. this. Just like, you know. <laughs> yep. All right. Poor guy. We scroll over here for a fat no on the great. <laughs> it's not a fat no. It's, a, it's, <sighs> it's a the saddest no, no I've ever it written. Is. It is. Oh, my God. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Like I said, uh, this is probably the one that I spent the most time researching because without our like standard, you know, oh, I've mm, got yeah, Dio and Herodian, yeah, yeah. I had to read other people's books mm-hmm. who have read all the like really sparse resources and it was really fun i enjoyed it a lot but yeah he's just 
he's the great what if man give him another 10 years because he was only 55 yeah he could have he could have easily done more um but we'll see how uh claudius and spoiler aurelian eventually do (laughs) i bet it's more chaos we'll see we'll see we are we are at rock bottom Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's up from here well until like the official split and complete eradication of the empire but yeah Yeah. we're at rock bottom of the crisis (laughs) okay okay okay. which is crazy that the rock bottom is hit with the only emperors who lasted more than five years Mm -hmm. it's kind of wild but thank you guys so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this it's been a really great episode for us and we will see you next time 